hey, it is Pablo. Hello. Um, we have a relationship on this show, you and me. And so it is Valentine's Day, and I wanted to bring you something appropriate, something that represents a day shaped and defined by love and romance and genuine human connection, a.k.a. the stuff that you would not expect to find in the middle of a hockey riot. But that is exactly what happened just a little over a decade ago. And we ran this story for the first time uh, in June 2021. And uh, it holds up, man. It's about a couple in Vancouver that shared a kiss in the middle of outright hockey-related pandemonium. And it became truly one of the first photographs to ever go viral. And so... Yes, it is Tuesday, February 14th, and this is ESPN Daily. Greg Mashinsky, you're here today to tell us a story that is kind of challenging for the medium we work in in a very specific way, because this is a story about a single photograph, which our listeners cannot see. So I just wanted you to start by describing this particular picture for us. Just what is in the frame here? Ten years ago in Vancouver, there was a riot. Greg Wyshynski covers hockey for ESPN. It was a riot that followed Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final between the Canucks and the Boston Bruins. And the photo we're talking about is the single most iconic image from that riot. It depicts a street covered in debris. There are riot police in the background running away. There's a riot police officer in the foreground holding a baton and a shield. And in between them is a man kissing a woman on the ground. The sky is filled with smoke. You can feel the illumination of fires around the city. And here is this guy, his legs intertwined with this girl, full-on kissing her. Not a peck, (laughs) just a full-on smooch in the middle of a riot in Vancouver. It was a photo of beauty in the midst of mayhem. And it's one of those photos that you see and immediately start wondering, what was going on there? The photo that continues to captivate the world Romance amid the madness. A tender moment in the midst of chaos. It is this image of the so-called Riot Romeo kissing his girlfriend that has captured worldwide attention. photo quickly went viral and raised all kinds of questions. Who were they and why were they locked in an embrace, laying in the streets smooching during a riot? That is what people want to know. We are drowning in photographs every day, every hour, pretty much all of them forgettable. A stream of images disappearing from our cell phones and our brains. But sometimes you see a picture that sticks with you an entire decade later, long after the riots and destruction and heartbreak that consumed a city that same night faded away today. Greg Wyshynski tells the story of one such photograph, and he gets answers from the people in front of and behind the lens.
So you're here to tell us the story of one of the strangest, most memorable, most iconic photographs that I can remember in sports and otherwise. And it was taken after Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final in Vancouver, Canada. And to understand this thing and all the elements within it, I first need to, I think, start with just the city of Vancouver and this team, the Canucks. How would you describe the legacy that this franchise has in the NHL? If I had to use one word, it'd be frustrating. Along with the Buffalo Sabres, the Canucks are the oldest NHL franchise to never have won the Stanley Cup a single time, having joined the league in 1970. Now, they've been to the Stanley Cup final twice before 2011. They lost to the dynastic New York Islanders in 1982, and then they lost to the New York Rangers in 1994, a series that you may remember for Marc Messier and yes. the guaranteed victory. And they lost in Game 7 in Madison Square Garden. The Canucks have sort of been one of those teams that contends and fits and spurts. They're not a consistent winner like your dynastic teams of the 1990s, like Colorado and New Jersey and teams like that. They've never been consistently dominating, but they've definitely had good teams and sometimes great teams that contended for the Stanley Cup. So it's a team that wants better for itself, but hasn't had better in quite a while. Until, I suppose, the 2010-2011 season, or so they hoped. What happens there? It all kind of came together for them in that season. There was a certain team of destiny thing happening with the Canucks. They finished with 117 points in the standings to win the President's Trophy for the first time in history. That's the award that goes to the NHL team with the best regular season record. This was a great team. I mean, they scored more goals than any team in the league and gave up the fewest. The first team to do that in more than 30 years since the 1978 Montreal Canadiens. They had an all-star goalie in Roberto Luongo. They had star offensive players in Daniel and Henrik Sedin. Between the circles, picked up by Daniel Sedin. What a set They were also kind of notorious in the NHL for their extracurricular activities on the ice from players like Kessler, Alex Burroughs, and Max Lapierre. They were a team that you'd love to respect for all of their prowess on the ice. And then a team you kind of hated a little bit because of the things they did that were nefarious. So this is a dominant team, a notorious team, a loved and hated team. Where does that leave their fans? Well, it's one of those deals where it's like, uh, you know, when you have a goon, right? And it's like you hate the goon when he's on another team, but he's when he's your goon, you love him. They love this team. They loved Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> the Canucks were a beloved team to the people of Vancouver. And keep in mind, this is a hockey mad city. They're one year removed from hosting the Winter Olympics and Olympics where Canada won the gold medal in hockey in overtime against the United States. My therapist and I have worked very hard to forget that game ever happened. And who was the goalie for that team? It was Roberto Luongo, the Canucks netminder uh, that led them to the Stanley Cup final that season. So, you know, this was a team that was Stanley Cup starved. It had been building up for decades now uh, that they wanted the Canucks to break through and win the Cup. And it was also building up through the decades that they that Canada wanted a team to bring the Cup back home. Right. Home with air quotes here. The last team to win was Montreal in 1993. Every team that had won since then was U.S.-based. And so you had an entire nation hoping that the Canucks could maybe break through to win a cup, and obviously the entire city hoping they could break through to win a cup too. By the way, 
having spent some time in Vancouver during those Olympics, beautiful place. Oh, I love the Gor- city. Uh, Greg, I love Vancouver so much. My God, gorgeous parks. You got the mountains, water, beautiful people, beautiful food, beautiful a city. Yes, a seawall. Yes. It. It's great. And their big giant park, their equivalent of Central Park is Stanley Park, which is the same Stanley that is, you know, Lord Stanley, the guy whose name is responsible for the Stanley Cup. Yeah, that's a little too on the nose when you haven't won one, you know. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> So the Canucks, they steamroll through that season in 2011, Greg. And the city, they are ready physically, psychologically to bring that cup home to Canada for the first time in like 20 years. And they win their first three series of the playoffs. They make it to the final. And waiting for them there are the Boston Bruins. So how does this all-important series begin? How does it go? So it's a fascinating series. I've been covering Stanley Cup finals for the last two decades, and this is the favorite one I've ever covered. It's the most memorable one. Uh, Every single game offered a new storyline, including the overarching storyline of that series, which is you had this Vancouver team that honestly had a lot of support coming into the series. And you had this Boston Bruins team, which were known as the Big Bad Bruins. And a lot of people didn't like them, (laughs) mainly because they were from Boston. I've spoken to several Boston players that were on that team, and they all said the same thing, that they could feel it inside their dressing room, the kind of heel face turn that was happening (laughs) between these two teams, where now all of a sudden, when they're going up against this Vancouver team that's known for their nefarious rule breaking on the ice, Boston becomes kind of like the heroic blue collar team looking to prevent the bad guys from winning the cup. It's crazy. So, so what kind of nefarious bad guy stuff does Vancouver do to earn that <laughs> reputation? Here? Well, there's a great example in game one. Alex Burroughs of the Vancouver Canucks actually bit the finger of Boston Bruins center <laughs> Patrice Bergeron. Watch Burroughs here. He clearly bites the finger of Patrice Bergeron. You cannot do that. I spoke to Mark Recchi of the Bruins about that incident, and he said, yeah, it, he bit right through the glove. You could see the marks on Patrice Bergeron's finger from Burroughs bit him. Yes. Through and by the, the way, if you know hockey gloves, right. disgusting. It's absolutely <laughs> disgusting. It's actually funny. Later on in the series, uh, Boston forward Milan Lucic actually offered his bare hand as a snack to Burroughs to kind of mock the incident in game one. <laughs> and Lucic trying to feed fingers to Burroughs. It is an ongoing theme. Um, but as the series went on, even more stuff happened. In game three, Boston's Nathan Horton, one of their key players, was taken out on a stretcher after a hit by Vancouver defenseman Aaron Rome, who was suspended for the rest of the final. This one's a whole lot of nasty. Aaron Rome comes up and just delivers a crushing open ice hit. Vancouver started out great. They won the first two games of the series, but Boston roared back one games three and four. After game five, things got weird again. Uh, Roberto Luongo, the Vancouver goalie, who played outstanding in game five and put the Canucks in the lead 3-2 in the series, 
criticized Boston goalie Tim Thomas's playing style and complained that Thomas hadn't flattered him enough through the media in the series. Wait, I don't... Was that something that Roberto Luongo had been expecting? Apparently so. I mean, he had been asked about Thomas's play and told the media... I've been pumping his tires ever since the series started, so uh, I haven't heard anyone... And one nice thing he had to say about me, so that's the way it is. Keep in mind, these are two very different people, two very different goaltenders, stylistically especially. And there was a bit of a uh, my kung fu is the best kung fu aspect to Luongo's mm. criticism of Thomas. Um, but it was just not something you normally see between two goaltenders. I didn't realize it was my job to pump his tires. I, you know, I guess I'll have to apologize for that. But anyways, <laughs> Thomas and the Bruins win game six at home. They send the thing to game seven back in Vancouver. So these fighting styles are clashing, tires are not nearly being pumped enough, and so Game 7 arrives, and everything is on the line for Vancouver, the team that had seemed destined all year to win this thing, Greg. So what happens? Well, for all the drama surrounding the series, Game 7 was an anticlimax. The Bruins scored the opening goal. Spins back in deep, feeds it in front, score! And the Bruins with a one nothing lead in the first! They added two more in the second period. Absolutely nothing was getting past Tim Thomas in that game. He ended up being named the playoff MVP. The Canucks lost 4-0. Here's Marshawn in empty net, scores! And the Boston Bruins can start celebrating with 2.44 to go. They lead it 4-0. That sucks. And there were thousands of fans inside the arena that were bummed, and there were tens of thousands of fans outside the arena that were really, really upset, and, you know, things started to get out of control. Uh, There was looting, there were cars being set on fire, eventually it becomes a full-fledged riot. You're looking live at downtown Vancouver, just an hour or so after the end of the Stanley Cup final game tonight, where Vancouver lost, and some Vancouver fans have clearly taken that loss in a very bad way. Police are deployed. You start getting tear gas being thrown, flash grenades being thrown. They're trying to protect businesses as as windows are being smashed and people are literally running out of businesses with televisions and stuff. So the police line up and they start going street to street in Vancouver, beating people back with their shields, and it becomes really ugly really fast. This is the Vancouver Police Department. This is an unlawful assembly, and you must... Yeah, it is a cinematically ugly scene that you're describing here, Greg. It is pandemonium. It is a giant riot. And obviously, all the media that had been covering this series, this game, they're around. And they're there chronicling what's unfolding. And one of those media members is a photographer named Rich Lamb. Tell me about him. Rich Lamb was working for Getty Images that night, uh, the photo agency. And he was at the game and he was covering the action and he was covering the post-game news conferences. And after those were done, he rushed outside to chronicle the madness in the streets. I was covering the game for Getty and then you could see that there's, you know, riding outside. And so the news side of me um, kind of wanted to go out there and do that because that seemed a little more exciting. So he came across somebody who said that the Hudson's Bay department store in downtown Vancouver, which is basically as iconic as Macy's and Herald Square in New York City, was on fire. Mm. So he made his way over there to capture those images. And sure enough, you know, that's where the heart of the action was. And uh, as the police started pushing us back, it was weird because it's not like a violent confrontation like how the, the protests are now that you would see. 
they weren't screaming at police lines. The police were kind of watching what these guys were doing. And then eventually they just kind of looked at each other and just started charging at the crowd. He kind of likened it to the running of the bulls. That you just had to run, you know, and, and, and when the police were coming down the street, you just had to get out of the way. It's like running the bulls and you, you just got to run. And it's been a long day. I was trying not to be a hero. I, I ran, right? You, you run. And all of a sudden, he sees two people on the ground and there's nobody around them. It was kind of weird seeing just two people on the ground and no one around. So it made an interesting frame and started taking some pictures. He sees this couple in the middle of the street and it looks like the guy is comforting the girl. So he snaps a few quick photos of them. He snaps one with a riot police officer in the foreground and he takes this photo that becomes absolutely iconic. Did Rich Lamb realize at the time he'd captured something iconic? He had no idea. <laughs> he returned <laughs> back to the arena. He's going through his photos, and uh, there were a few frames where the couple was kissing. This is around midnight. Um, you know, I flipped my cards to the editor, uh, you know, and they went through the pictures and found this uh, a frame where they're actually kissing. I think I only had three frames of them actually kissing. He thought it was kind of neat, the framing and stuff, but... In all actuality, his mind wasn't on, did I take an instantly iconic photo in the middle of a riot? It was, I'm hungry. He hadn't had dinner. <laughs> so his, his mind was who can't more, re- Who can't relate? Yeah, so his mind was more on where his next meal was going to come from. But he knew it was a cool picture. But it wasn't until the next day that Lamb realized he had something special in the photo when he received a phone call at 7 a.m. to tell him that the image had gone viral like super viral, like globally viral. It's a photo that seems out of place in the middle of the Vancouver riots, yet it's proving to be the most popular topic online. One of the last places you'd expect to find romance (laughs) is in the middle of a riot, but that's exactly what was going on with this couple. Back now at 7.43 with a kiss that's seen all around the world. A young couple appears to be locked in a passionate embrace. But it's in the middle of a riot. People were pointing at this thing and saying it's one of the most beautifully composed photos they had ever seen. And it became the quintessential image of this unfortunate event after Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. As the riots eventually end, and we're talking about, in the end, more than $5 million in damage, more than 100 injuries, thankfully no fatalities, but that picture, I remember becoming one of those people pointing at the image, just marveling at it, Greg. I remember seeing it on news shows, front pages. It was everywhere around the world of this couple kissing, finding this moment of of romance in the middle of all of this. Did anyone know who they were? No. That's incredible when you think about it. And it began this race to find out who the Vancouver riot kissing couple was. It was a media obsession. If you know who the now famous couple is, do tell us. I remember Esquire called the photo Love in the Time of Rioting. Uh, The Sun over in the UK had a giant headline that blared, Couple make love at hockey riot. There was a Twitter account dedicated to Photoshop memes of the couple kissing in front of Mm. other disasters. Like there was one image where they Photoshopped the Vancouver kissing couple in front of the Hindenburg. Yes. And like people really wanted to know who they were. But more than that, they wanted to know the story behind the photo. Why were they kissing? How did they end up in the street? And it felt like at one point everybody not only in Vancouver, but outside the city was trying to locate this couple. 
right, Greg, after the break, the world finds the Vancouver riot couple. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, Greg. So this photo has gone viral. The photo of the couple kissing in the street in the middle of this riot. It's everywhere all around the world. And us media types, we want to know who they are. We want an interview. Everyone does. How does the press go about finding them? So one of the frames that Richard Lamb, the photographer, shot, not the one that went viral, but another one that was published on Getty Images, showed the man's face. And a woman in Australia happened to see the photo and immediately exclaimed, Crikey, that's me brother. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) I went over to his Facebook page and all his friends were commenting and saying, oh, my God, you know, do you know you're on the news? Do you know what's happened? You're famous. And I was like, oh, my God, it actually is my brother. So she alerted the local news media in Australia. And then soon enough, all of the news media knew the man's name and started calling him on his phone. So who was he? Who, who, who were they? Well, the couple was a young man named Scott Jones and a young woman named Alex Thomas. And Scott was originally from Australia and Alex is a Vancouver native. And they had been dating about six months and it just became a media frenzy to try to interview them. The search went quickly. Like Scott started getting phone calls literally the next day uh, after the Australian media report and messages asking for interviews. He gets so many of them, he eventually turns off his phone. Obviously, this is just a couple of normies, right? Like they're Mm. not prepared for global media frenzy that has descended upon them because they were caught in this iconic photo. And so they didn't really know what to do, right? So They decided to turn to one of the only people in Vancouver that they figured would understand their sudden plight. And it was Rich Lamb, the photographer who took their picture. Mm. Uh, Alex's father helped set up this meeting between them at a cafe just outside the city. And Lamb remembered looking at them and seeing a couple that was rattled. They just seemed like fish out of water. I could just hear in their voice that there was a little bit of fear and hesitation because everyone was looking for them. So I'd offer some assistance in in presenting their options and kind of understanding that, you know, this isn't a bad story. You know, they haven't done anything wrong. And so, you know, while he's not a crisis PR manager, he, he knows his way around the media and he advises them on what to do. You know, do a couple of interviews, give some red meat to the wolves, and then the media will go on to the next thing. And eventually, a day or two later, they sit down with the CBC in Canada, an outlet in in Australia, and they go on the Today Show in the United States. And so what do they say happened? So they were basically watching Game 7 at a friend's place. And when the riot started breaking out, Scott decided to sort of be a tourist. You know, he wanted to go outside and see what was going on. And all of a sudden, they found themselves, spoiler, in the middle of a riot. We realized... They're emptying the streets. There's tear gas going off. 
and we found ourselves on this street where there was and then the police lined up. They were blocking off streets, tear gas started, we had nowhere else to go, we didn't know where we were supposed to go. The police are coming down the streets, Scott and Alex are trying to run away as fast as they can. Alex was not running fast enough, and so she got knocked down by a riot police officer's shield. We tried to run away, but um, Alex couldn't. tripped up. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I was starting to get really frightened because I'd never experienced anything like that before, and it's really scary. The riot police move on past them, and all of a sudden they're alone in the middle of the street, and she's hysterical. I was upset and I fell down and didn't really know, you know, exactly what was happening. I was upset. Eventually they passed over us uh, and that's when we were on the ground. I was just, she was a bit hysterical afterwards, obviously, um, and I was just trying to calm her down. And so Scott leaned down, tried to calm her down, and decided in that moment the best way to calm down his girlfriend was to give her a kiss. Like, he was pretty, pretty scary for her and, uh, seemed like the best thing to do. They had no idea that it was being photographed. They had no idea what was going around them. It was just two people in the moment trying to comfort each other in the midst of chaos. It's just a moment that happened to be on camera and that it's not, it's not embarrassing at all. It's actually a really beautiful shot. Were there any other photos, any videos of this moment? There were, and it's really important that there were. One of the many theories and accusations being made about this photo was that it was staged or that it was photoshopped. Mm. And Rich Lamb was very angry about this. But on Twitter, users speculated about the story behind the image. Hmm, staged or real, tweeted one person. Are they kissing or struggling, tweeted another. He was sort of fighting back these accusations that this perfectly framed photo had been staged in some way. So a couple of days later, an amateur video emerged from the top of a nearby building. It ended up on YouTube and it showed the couple getting knocked down by the riot police. It showed Scott trying to comfort Alex and it showed it from a perspective that obviously authenticated the situation and showed that in no way was this thing staged. The videographer just happened to be filming the police interaction with the crowds and caught the scene by happenstance. Yeah, I'm watching the video now, Greg, on my computer. It's very clearly an organic moment. It's a scary moment, honestly. So when Scott and Alex get tracked down and they feed the beast, they satiate the media's appetite, what happens to them next? Well, for them, they live life. They actually took a trip down to California and hung out there for a little bit and then continued on with their plan, which was to move out of the country. Um, Not because of their sudden fame, just because that's what they were going to be doing anyway. The photo itself takes on a life of its own. It starts winning awards left and right. Esquire named it the photo of the year. Uh, There were tons of jokes still circulating about it. There was actually a bit on the ESPYs that year where they had a couple of actors pretending to be the couple just making out in the aisle during the show. And while they're not nominated tonight, we're very happy to have them with us in the audience. Please give a warm round of applause to the Vancouver Kissing Couple. Where are they? They're not in their seats. Do you know where they went? Oh, guys, guys. Come on, guys. Guys, Vancouver Kissing Couple, you got to stop that. 
but essentially after they're identified and they do some media, it's exactly what Rich Lamb said. You gave the people what they wanted, and now you move on with life. They're a sweet, normal couple. Everything kind of fits story-wise. No conspiracy theories are lingering, and everybody just kind of moves on. Well, everyone moves on, Greg, except for you, because... You track down this couple to see what's happened 10 years later. So after the break, the Vancouver kissing couple today. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, and more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. So, Greg, here we are. It is the 10-year anniversary today of that photograph of this couple kissing in the middle of the street during the Vancouver riots. And you talk to them. You track down Scott Jones and Alex Thomas. So where are they? How are they doing? Are they still together? So they were six months into their relationship when this happened. Wow. And I think we've all been conditioned to expect that when a couple ends up being virally famous, that it's not going to last. No, right? it never it never goes well. They're still together. Oh. They have a three-year-old daughter. They live outside of Perth, Australia. And I talked to them over Zoom recently, and they're just lovely, normal people. So we live in Perth now. All my family's in Perth, so we moved back to Perth um, with the idea that we we're going to open a craft beer bar. Mm. Um, and we did that, sort of jumped in, bought a house, built a bar, and, uh, and now we, we have had and a baby. Had a baby. <laughs> so how do they remember that moment now? What do they remember from it? Well, they still feel it's surreal to have been a part of history like this. And I could tell that there was still some lingering animosity towards the way that they were treated by the media and especially internet trolls at that time. You have to remember that when this photo went viral, people didn't have a backstory for them. And whenever that happens, people start inventing one. And Mm. it kind of got ugly. You know, there was the 
accusations that the photo was staged. That's one level of ugly. And then there were like entirely different, horrible levels of ugliness where there were accusations that Scott had assaulted Alex or that what was happening in the photo was non-consensual. People were just randomly making up stories about what was happening as well. Um, you know, there was some things that she'd been stabbed and that I wasn't her boyfriend. Horrible things that you don't get. So it's not the truth at all. Yeah. So that was a bit disheartening to read. You know, the people just will invent a story if they don't have a backstory for what happened. So one of the reasons they started doing media was to quickly clear the air of all of these conspiracy theories. And, you know, Alex Thomas told me that she looks back at the moment and thinks they didn't even know what going viral meant. Either of us were very social media savvy or anything prior to that. Like we didn't really have any inkling of what going viral, like we didn't know what that meant or any of it. Like, and so I guess, yeah, we were certainly not expecting it. And so it was a bit of a weird adjustment. So this is 2011. It's kind of a proto-viral moment. Do they get recognized? They were famous for like three weeks. Uh, they told me that they got recognized by a uh, baggage handler, I believe it was, at the airport. They got recognized <laughs> in a bar in San Diego by some random person who's like, you were the kissing couple. But they're just a random normal couple who were globally famous for a few weeks. And then they went back to being a random normal couple again. What's their attitude towards the photograph as they look at it today in the present? Well, they've definitely embraced it. Not in like an influencer way where they're like signing t-shirts and copies of it or anything. <laughs> you know, they have, they have a couple framed copies of the photo. One that's in their house and one on the wall of a brew pub they run outside Perth. Uh, Rich Lamb, the photographer, signed both copies and they've kind of watched over the years as the photo would emerge in different little bits of media. The band Placebo used it as an album cover and actually sent them a signed copy of the album. And the photo was used recently in the credit sequence for the show Modern Love on Amazon Prime. Yes. And it's it's just sort of shocking for them that this happened, but not so shocking that years later, everything's sort of normal and they just see little you know, spikes occasionally of interest, especially around anniversaries. I guess uh, in the grand scheme of things and the things we've accomplished since and things we've done since, I guess just a piece of the, the backstory and everything now. But deep down, they just know it's a beautiful photo and that it captured this moment of their love in the middle of all this awful chaos. And it's a love that happily continues to this day. Greg Wyshynski, thank you for telling us the story of a beautiful photograph. Thank you at any time. I'm Pablo Torre, and this has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>